Well, good morning. I'm Dan Clancy. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have a confession to make to you before we get started. Is uh, You wouldn't think this, you know, like a pastor. You're like, ah, you're used to getting up in front of people. That's just the thing. But every time they ask me to preach, I mean, I am afraid. I mean, I'm like, I go... It's crazy what I go through the week before, you know, all the conversations with God. I'm like, God, do I have to, you know? And uh, I just get flashbacks. When I was in, a junior in high school, I was running for class uh, president. And uh, the guy in front of me was a guy on my wrestling team. He's running against me. I had been class president, ninth grade, 10th grade. And then in 11th grade, he runs against me, and uh, anyway, he's up there, and uh, he was an African-American. He was just like Hercules, and uh, I remember, how many of you ever watched that show, Good Times, back in the 70s, okay, with J.J. and all that? Well, anyway, he ended his speech by, he's like, our junior year is going to be dynamite. And he did the speech before me, and at that time, even before I got up to speak, I'm like, I just lost. <laughs> I just lost. There's no way. And I felt the pressure so much is then in front of the whole class, I got up there to do my little thing, which I thought was witty. It wasn't witty at all. But I froze. Because there's no way I could compete with dynamite, you know? And uh, so when I, a lot of times when I get up here, I mean, it's, it's like, like that song, you know, I, I boast not. And I feel like I have nothing to boast about, that's for sure. And when the Lord called me into ministry, I was like, oh, Lord, are you sure? You know, it's like... You got the wrong person. You know, I got dyslexia. You know, I'm short. I'm, uh, you know, sort of pudgy. Let's just call it what it is, you know? And I'm like, there's so many other people. I went to Bible college, and I'm like, there's so many other people, you know? I'm like, he's a better speaker. He knows so much more. That guy's a musician and plays a guitar and everything. And that guy's just got a flat, good-looking girlfriend, you know? <laughs> And I'm like, what do I have to offer you? I have nothing. And, uh, you know, I did feel like what we're going to talk about at the very beginning. I felt like a failure. And you think about the Bible. Think about all the stories you know. I mean, think about why is there, have you ever wondered, why is there so many failures recorded in the Bible? So many stories of failure. These facts of failures tell me two very important things about this book. The first thing about failure that it tells me is that God wrote this book. God wrote this book because if man wrote this book, he would have glossed over man's sin. Man likes to whitewash his sin. But when God paints the portrait of Dan Clancy, God paints it warts and all. He shows the real thing. 
And, uh, you know, there's no glamour pictures. You remember that in the 80s when glamour pictures were like the thing? I'd go into a pastor's office and he's got a glamour picture of his wife. And I'm like, what? What is this? You know, you that know what I'm talking about, you're laughing right now because you're like, this is sort of wrong, you know, whatever this is. They dress you all up and you got fur and you got this and all this. I'm like, that's your wife. I don't want think I want that picture in your office, you know. But anyway, long story short, God doesn't do the glamour shots. God shows it warts and all. The second thing that it tells me is the God that wrote this book is a God of grace. He is a God of grace, and he wants me to profit from the experiences of failures from the other people that have gone before me. And these failures are like flashing red lights. I have a friend, we were roommates and, uh, when I was in Tyler, Texas, and he wasn't the brightest of all guys, but somehow, some way, he ended up passing his license to get to be a, a pilot, okay? And so he had to go through all his things. He's like, hey, when I get my license, we're going to go. And I had skydived. I had done all this other stuff. But that, to me, skydiving was sensible. Riding in a plane with my friend, David Lowndes, was not sensible, okay? Because I knew him. So anyway, he's like, hey, I want to show you what this plane will do. There's this, little, there's this little button right here. You see it right here? It's called the Starl Warning Indicator. Well, that doesn't sound real good. He's like, watch this. And so he puts the plane into a stall where we're literally dropping to the ground. And this indicator goes off. I'm looking around, you know, where's my parachute? I'll do the skydive again right here. Where is it? I don't see one. And he's like, isn't this cool? But you know what? That's just like the Holy Spirit. You know, with the failures, you know, it's like, it's saying, watch out, Dan. Caution, danger. This could happen to you. You are not above these sins. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at Peter. But when people of the word, when they think about failure, when they think about failure, usually one of the the Bible passages they're thinking about is Mark chapter 14. They're, talking, they're thinking about Peter here. And so Peter's failure, Peter's failure was not a blowout like in the tire. Peter's failure was a slow leak. Now, do we have any tire people here this morning? Either you worked for Goodyear or Bridgestone or any of the other ones. How many tire people or used to be tired people do we have here? Okay, I got a couple, got a couple, this is good. So you guys are gonna be able to relate to this. But this week, I don't know if you work for Goodyear, you might be mad at me for saying this other word, but this week I called Bridgestone. I called an engineer, tire engineer there. And I asked them this question. I said, what does driving on an underinflated tire do to the integrity of the tire? Okay? Am I in any danger for driving on this tire? 
And he told me, he said, yeah, it is very dangerous. I'm like, that doesn't sound so dangerous to me. But anyway, he says, because over time, it starts destroying the inside of the tire. The part that no one sees. You start driving your car, you think it's okay, you look at the tire, there's tread on it. But he says, if you drive on an underinflated tire over the course of time, what will happen is inside the cords or the plies, they start tearing. And spiritually, this is really important. If you trace, you know, this year I've been watching pastors fall, you know, from big churches and stuff like that. You may not know of them, but I read of this stuff. But if you trace the process of someone's spiritual failure, usually it's a slow leak. It's not a blowout. It's a slow leak. It's gradual. It's over time. And today, I'm warning you, some of you are on that slow leak. Looks fine from the outside. No one sees. No one knows. But inside... Inside, it's tearing. It's ripping. It's ready to have a blowout there. It's your character. It's your marriage. And when we look at the story that we're going to do today, we have to sort of go back to what Pastor Ryan preached last week. Last week, Pastor Ryan preached on verses Mark chapter 14. So if you got your Bible, we're going to... Have your Bibles open for a long time today because we're looking at 20 verses, okay? Mark chapter 14, but we're going to go back and look at four verses there, verses 27 through 31, just to give you a background of the story. So the background of this story is Peter. He's boasting. And anytime, usually, Peter enters the story, it's with a big thud. It's with a big splash. Peter, what he does is he opens his mouth. A lot of times when he opens his mouth, he installs his foot. That's what happens. And he says this. He says, even though all others may fail you, I will not. You can count on me, Jesus. And Jesus, in grace, tries to wake him up spiritually and says, Peter, it's sooner than you think. I tell you the truth, today. Yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Now, what was Peter's problem? Was it insincerity? Was he not sincere about the words that he said? No. He was very sincere. And in a moment, we're going to see not only was he sincere about what he said, Peter is about ready to go one on a hundred with a mob, a crowd, a fisherman with his sword going after him. You see, his problem was not whether or not he was sincere or not. His problem was ignorance. His problem was ignorance. And that's my problem too. When I was a young Christian, 
we would write all these really cool, cool quotes in the back of our Bible. We, if some preacher said something really cool, we would write it in our Bible. Did you, anyone of you do that too? I see one over there, not. You've done that, good. Okay, here are some of the cool quotes that were in my Bible. The Bible will keep you away from sin, or sin will keep you away from the Bible. Very, very true. Second quote that I had in my Bible was, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but he gives it to us one hamburger at a time. Another one which relates to the sermon, now get this one, when I try, when I try, I fail. When I trust, he succeeds. Get that again. When I try, I fail. When I trust, he succeeds. Our flesh knows one thing. Our flesh knows failure. Now, I know this was a long introduction to this story, but we're going to jump into the story. And what we're going to do is we're going to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word. And we're going to look at what this passage will teach us today. So will you pray with me as we start? Heavenly Father, Lord, we give this over to you, this moment, this time. And Lord, I pray that hearts will be open and ears will be open for those that are really tired. May they stay up really long. For those that are on the slow leak right now, Lord, I pray that you would wake them up spiritually. And I ask all this in your loving and your precious name. Amen. So I'm going to start off before we read this verse by making a statement. I think that we as Christians probably have been really, really harsh about judging the disciples for the last 2,000 years. I think we've been a little harsh. And a lot of our judgment came upon what happened in the garden here in Mark chapter 14. I've heard sermons where they describe the the disciples as unreliable. They're not around. They're not dependable when Jesus was in crisis. They were literally asleep at the will. They were lazy. They were good for nothing. The disciples have been painted as men who let Jesus down. That night in the garden when Jesus was distressed, when Jesus was troubled, the disciples were asleep. It's true. This is all true. But let me set the background behind this. So just so you know, not just the verses that we're going to read, but the backstory here. Earlier that day, Okay, this is one day that we're reading about. Earlier that day, sometimes we'll preach it in three, four weeks here, but it was one day, okay? Earlier that day, remember, it was Passover. Now, the disciples had come from a very large um, Passover meal. Do I have a picture of what a Passover meal looks like? You guys got it from the back, maybe see it. You see it right there. You see all the decorations and but Passover for them was like, it was like the Jewish Thanksgiving there for the Jewish people. So Jesus sends his disciples to go organize the festivities ahead of time. So not only were they going to enjoy their favorite meals, they were going to stuff themselves. Um, they weren't going to watch football or anything like that, but they were going to 
enjoy all this. The disciples had not only were they going to do all this, but they had to do the prep work. And anybody in here who's had to wake up at 5.30 in the morning to stick the turkey in the oven on, on Thanksgiving Day, you know what I'm talking about. By the time 3 o'clock rolls around and the dinner rolls that you've made by scratch and watched them raise and put in the oven and put the butter on it and for it to come out at 3 o'clock, by 3 o'clock, you could barely keep your eyes open. Some of you ladies can give me amen on that. Some of you men that cook, you understand that. That's the background of the story of this passage in the garden. Now it's late at night after a long meal. A very emotional day for the disciples. They've been dozing off. So now we get into the story. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. We're going to go verse by verse looking at this. It says, they, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. The they that they were talking about, if you want to circle in your Bible, the they that they were talking about was Jesus' inner circle. It was Peter, James, and John. Gethsemane, the place there, was an olive grove. It was a beautiful garden. It was on the slope there. It was outside of Jerusalem. There's a wine press. The question I have is, why them? Why Peter, James, Peter, James and John. Why just them? Why not the rest of the disciples? Why just those three? And maybe it is because they're the inner circle. Maybe that's the answer. Or maybe it's because they were singled out because of their recent boast that they had made. Peter, we just talked about the boast that he made. All the other ones will fail you, but I will not. I will die, you know, I will never deny you. And we know what, the ha- what happens there. But James and John, if you look in Mark chapter 10, verses 38 and 40, they also said that they would suffer. They would suffer with Jesus. And we find them asleep. Now, my question, my second question I asked with this on If Jesus took them along for support, if Jesus took them along for companionship, did they provide that? Did they provide that for Jesus? And my answer is, that's a big no right there. They didn't do that. So in verse 33, it says, he took Peter, James, and John, and and he began to be in great distress, and he was troubled. I think to myself, what is he distressed about? Thinking about Jesus here. Is, it, is he distressed about the pain? Is he gonna, is distressed about all that he's going to go through, the whipping, the scourging, the mocking, all this? And I want to answer no to that. Maybe it's not that. So then what is he distressed about if it's no to that? A lot of you say, yeah, Dan, it is that. But I think it's his fear of being abandoned by God. You see, a holy God cannot look upon sin. And Jesus is not only, Jesus is going to take on my sins. Well, that's pretty bad. But when he takes on Joe Talamo's sins, that's really, really bad, if you know Joe. And then when he starts taking on the rest of your, your sins, this is, this is bad. 
This is the silence of God when Jesus is taking on the sins of the whole world. The sins from the past, the sins from the present. In the NEB, it translates this verse that it was horror and dismay came upon Jesus. Horror and dismay. Verse 34, he said to them then, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. I looked at that word, circled that word, watch, and look what it meant. Does Jesus intend for his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to watch for Judas and the mob that's coming? As he's like, stay awake, watch for them, they're coming? No. He's telling them to spiritually be at be alert, to be on guard against the temptation of indifference. The temptation of indifference. And I say that that's the word apathy. If you read the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, it reminds me of that. You know, because that's where most Christians are. They stay in that place. They're indifferent. They're asleep. They're going through the emotions they put in their 80, 80 minutes here at church and give Jesus the rest of the week off. They're asleep. They're asleep at the will. And if that's you today, I would say to you, wake up. Wake up. And then going a little further, it says that Jesus fell on the ground and he prayed. If it were possible the hour might pass from him. Now, Jews most often prayed standing up with their hands lifted up. For a Jew to fall on the ground was a sign of urgency, extreme urgency. In his prayer, he prayed. And today, I'm going to say this a lot, prayer is the recognition that your need is your need is not partial. Your need is total. Prayer is the recognition that our need is not partial. Our need is total. When it talks about the hour, he says if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. He's not talking about a literal hour. He's talking about the time by God to accomplish. God's purposes. Did the sound just go out on me? Okay. Now, he continues and he says this. He says, this is important. In verse 30, 36, he says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Abba. Abba in the Greek means daddy. It's a word that most Jews would never use when they were talking about God because they didn't think that it was, it, it, it was holy enough. They thought it was being disrespectful. Abba is usually a word that a little kid used describes their father. You know, daddy. He's saying, he, Jesus is showing his intimate relationship with God the Father, daddy. When he's saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup 
Cup is the same word that's referring back to our right there, God's divine judgment. Jesus' prayer was to be spared death, but God gave him a different answer for his prayer. God gave him something even better. God gave him something even better that day. And the thing that he gave better to him was victory over death. Now I'm going to go back and look at a parallel passage. In Luke chapter 22, in verse 42 for 49, it says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Sounds the same. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Now look what Luke adds to it here. And then appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So i got a couple thoughts on this passage right here. First, first thought is this. It wasn't God's will to remove the cup. It wasn't God's will. A lot of times we pray prayers, and we want God to give us the answer that we want. It wasn't God's will for um, him to remove the cup. Number two, the answer to Jesus' prayer, like I said, wasn't yes. Sometimes the answer is different than what we, what we want. Number three, you see, Jesus didn't go through all this alone. Immediately, it says, then appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Have you ever noticed that? You know, it's like this week, I went to a funeral. And uh, it was a guy that used to be in the youth group here, Taylor Moore. A lot of you guys might know his parents. Taylor was only 37. Taylor died in his sleep from a heart attack. Now, Taylor played the guitar for me in the youth group. He's only 37. He's one of the kindest, nicest, funniest guys that you ever meet. Very giving. I mean, he was just fun. He was sort of like, I don't know, the man down by the river. You know, that. remember that skit, you know, that they used to do on Saturday Night Live? You know, the big old guy down by the river, or Tommy Boy. He was that kind of guy. He's bigger than life. He was funny. And... Uh, I watched during the, the funeral. I sat in the third row, and I watched his young wife show remarkable strength during the funeral. And, you know, the funeral service is usually to be an encouragement to the family, to let them grieve and all that. People were all grieving. And one by one, as they asked you to show respects to the body. I always hate doing that, by the way. I always hate going by body and showing respects. I don't know why. Maybe I'm creeped out by death or something like that. But um, I noticed that everyone was going by her, and they were hugging her one by one. And finally, she got up. She stood up from the front row, and she went over and stood by the casket. And one by one, what she gave was remarkable strength. The people were grieving too. And yet it was the wife that was giving the strength, the hope, the encouragement, one by one by one. Now, how do people do that? Have you ever noticed that when tragedy hits, 
that it's often the person that's going through the darkness that ends up giving people hope. How do they do that? It's because God walks beside us. He walks beside us. He gives us strength. And that's exactly what I saw in the funeral this week is that, you know, she was given strength. And I think of this verse in Jesus' distress. In Jesus' distress, Jesus praying, intensely praying that this cup be removed. But what we have to do is look beyond to the fruit of his prayer, the fruit of his prayer. The fruit of his prayer was you. It was me. It was our salvation. It was the centuries and centuries of people and martyrs and people and missionaries of people that have given their life for the cause of Christ. And that was the fruit. That was the fruit that day. And he says, and not my will, not my will, but your will. Jesus totally submits to his father's authority. It says in verse 37, then he came and he found them asleep. And, it, and he said to Peter, Simon Peter, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? He's, he's saying, Peter. I mean, it's probably if it were me, I'd be like, Peter, of all people, you need to be awake, bro. I know what's going to happen to you here. Of all people, you need to be awake. Being sleepy after a long emotional day, being sleepy after a big meal is natural. But Jesus expected more. And from us, he expects more. He doesn't expect the church that's asleep asleep and that is what most Christians go through their entire life doing is being asleep complacent apathetic he says are you asleep and in verse 38 he says watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation The second mistake that Peter makes as a disciple is this, is he prayed too little. He boasts too much. He prayed too little. And there's not a man or woman in this building, including me, that does not need the exhortation to pray. Jesus says that men ought always to pray. Paul said, pray without interruption. James says, you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask a mist and you consume it upon your own lust. Our failure in prayer, get this, is not an accident. Our failure in prayer is not an accident. Our failure in prayer is cultivated. It's cultivated. Howard Hendricks is one of my favorite professors of all time. Dallas Theological, I used to go down there and watch him down at the Cove preach and all this stuff. The guy is amazing, hermeneutics, everything. But Howard Hendricks writes this, and this is incredible. And you're going to hear me say it like if I said it, you'd be sending me emails. But if Howard Hendricks, you may believe it. But 
You, if it were me, you'd be sending emails, but see what? If you get mad at Howard Hendricks, you can't send him an email because he's dead, okay? But this is what he said. Now listen, Satan doesn't mind if you witness for Christ. I'm like, what? Satan doesn't mind if you witness for Christ so long as you don't pray. He knows that it's far more important to talk to God about men than to talk to men about God. Get that? He knows it's far more important for us to pray about men than to talk to men about God. Number two, he says this, Satan doesn't mind if you study your Bible. He loves it if you study your Bible. Just as long as you do not pray. Because when you do pray, because when you do study your Bible without praying, it causes a severe case of spiritual pride. Third thing he says is Satan doesn't mind if you compulsively get involved at church. You're active, you're here all the time. So long as you don't pray. Because Satan knows that nothing significant will happen in your busyness. Nothing significant will happen in your busyness at church apart from prayer. My wife told me this story, and she reminded me of this week. We used to be at the Southern Baptist Church in Louisiana for a moment in our lives, and it was weird. A lot of the senior adults would go on missions trips, and they would go to prayer walk. And I thought to myself back then, you spend all that money to go there and prayer walk? You can pray at home and save that money. Why would you do that? And it doesn't make any sense. These verses all about praying. So some of you, you're like, I can't go to Guatemala and dig that ditch. Go there and pray. This is my 34th year of ministry. And one thing I've discovered over 34 years is you cannot make prayer popular. You could do a prophecy series and talk about end times, and people will literally crawl out of rocks, underneath rocks, to come and to hear what might happen according to whatever your, whatever your view on last times is. Another thing they'll come to hear is marriage, family. You can get a good crowd. But you know what? Prayer? It's crickets. Last time we did a prayer event here, four people. Four. Four people. And one of them was Pastor Ryan. He had to be here. He was paid. <laughs> Prayer is the recognition that our need is not partial, but our need is total. It goes on in verse 38, the spirit. The spirit is welling, but the flesh is weak. I can relate to this verse. It reminds me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. It says, I do not understand my own actions. I don't know about you in here, but I don't understand why I do what I do. I love my kids to death. I don't understand why I yell at them. I don't understand why I lose my temperature. Te <laughs> Whew, it's getting hot. Um, 
the verse goes on and says, but I, for I do the very things I hate. Can you relate? You do the very things that you hate. There's sins. I remember when I was a teenager, man, I would go down the altar and I'm like, God, if I ever make out with my girlfriend too long again, just kill me. Just kill me. I am so glad he didn't. But then I'd be down at the altar the next week saying the same thing again and again. The thing about it is right here, I don't understand my own actions. I don't understand why I do what I do. I do the things that I hate. And with the disciples, the disciples probably couldn't understand when Jesus asked them, are you still asleep? Why are you still asleep? The disciples probably couldn't understand their actions. They had every intention of staying awake. They had every intention of praying. They're like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was the turkey. I don't know. Um, have you ever nodded off? Have you ever nodded off while driving? Okay, a few of you. To stay awake. I mean, I remember when I was, my first couple years of college, I was 18, 19. Man, I'd get to go home for Christmas break, and I went to college in Springfield, Missouri, and I live in Baltimore, Maryland. There's 18 hours. I couldn't wait to get home. I couldn't wait for mom's meals. I couldn't wait for the Christmas holidays. I couldn't wait for the gifts. Exams had just ended. I'd stayed up every night cramming into my brain all these things that I didn't study the whole three months there, but I wanted to get it all in there. I couldn't wait to see family. I couldn't wait to get together with my friends. And I would drive 18 hours straight. Me and my friends, we'd drive 18 hours straight. We didn't even stop to change. We would literally crawl over each other and say, okay, take over right now. I'm not pulling over. You got to crawl over me and take over the car. This is how stupid we really were. We couldn't wait to get home. It's like, it's your turn to drive. I got to sleep right now. And we were too broke to get a hotel. And so not only were we too broke, but we were too excited. We wanted to get home. And so what did we do? We loaded up on the caffeine. We'd roll the windows down in December. We'd play loud Christmas music to get us all excited. Occasionally, we'd put our head out the window and all this cold Arctic air, especially when we were crossing Ohio, would hit us in the face. And then if it were really bad, we'd start slapping ourselves. We'd get home and we're all bruised up. We're slapping ourselves. Wake up, you know. But you think about it in this situation. None of it worked. None of it worked. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. That's exactly how the disciples felt there. And again, they went away and they prayed, saying this. Jesus prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came back and he found them asleep, for their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to answer him. Jesus, we see, is persistent in prayer, coming back to God again, praying the same prayer, the same words, and yet the same answer. But how does Jesus react to his disciples. Does he rebuke them? Does he yell at them? I know I would have, but he didn't. He was gentle. And then it says in verse 41 through 42, it says this, then he came again the third time and he said to him, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinner. 
Arise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, again, the third time. Okay, why the scripture put here the third time? Now, I think that it was here to show us, you know, the threefold sleeping incident corresponds with Peter later on, which you'll be hearing next week is three, threefold. Peter denies um, the Lord. Enough there isn't like he's like, enough, wake up. You know, I'm sick of you guys. You keep sleeping. He is not saying that. What he's saying is enough is just the word enough. Enough. It's settled. It's paid. Judas has betrayed me. He's received his money. Enough. The betrayer's at hand. Let us arise. My father's will is about ready to start right here. All this stuff is about ready to begin. The scourging, the beating, the trial, the mocking, all this. And it says there in verse 43, it says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, with him a crowd with swords and clubs, and from the chief priests and scribes and elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he came up to him at once and said, Rabbi, Judah saying this, and he kissed him. And, he, and they laid their hands upon him, and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut his ear off. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Talking about the disciples. They all fled. The third mistake Peter made here was he acted too soon. Whenever you boast too much, whenever you pray too little, a lot of times you're going to act too soon. You're not going to make a wise decision. Here Peter is completely exhausted. We see in this passage, Peter's angry. Angry people don't usually make good decisions. At Liberty University, during my senior year, they made me the prayer leader for dorm six. Dorm six was all the college wrestlers. And usually the guys that were in my dorm were hangry. They were hangry because they were all cutting weight. They were all losing weight. They're college wrestlers. They were being denied food. And my roommate would say, and they'd always want to wrestle one another, he says, if you can get your opponent angry, you can whip them. Because an angry man is never fully in control. And the th third problem we see right here is Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a swordsman. He drew out his sword. You know, he probably hit the guy's helmet and it slid down the helmet and got his ear. I don't really know how. I don't know if he was just that great that he just, maybe the guy had big ears, you know, boom, you know. Uh, Peter was off target. But listen, this is very important. Peter was active 
when he should have been passive. Peter was active when he should have been passive. And he was passive when he should have been active. He should have been active in prayer. He should have been active in prayer, but he was passive in sleep. He should have been passive to the will of God, but he was active with the sword. Have you ever found yourself in this situation in church? Someone tells you this, you're like, I know I shouldn't tell anybody, but I really want you to pray for somebody, but... You know, we, we disguise it as that it's prayer, but it's really, what, gossip? But we find ourselves in that situation more than we would think that we would. But then when we have our prime opportunity to share the gospel, it's just sitting there. We're silent. We're silent in 27 languages. We're active when we should be passive. And we're passive when we should be active. The most exciting thing about this, and I'm going to wrap it all up. The most exciting thing about Peter's failure and the disciples' failure was their failures was not fatal. Their failure was not fatal, and your failure is not fatal either. Wake up. Get up. The Bible says in Proverbs, it says, a just man falls seven times and rises up again, but the wicked fall into mischief. We will fall. You will fall. Get up. Wake up. Don't waller around in your failure. Get up and get going. Remember the first time that Jesus met Peter? He said this, thou art Simon. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which means rock. It took Jesus time to get the Simon out of him and to get the rock into him. But he did. And the pagan world said this. They testified. These are they who turn the world upside down. Wake up, church. We could turn this community upside down if we would wake up, if we got involved, if we weren't apathetic, if we really believed that prayer worked. Sometimes we say, oh, God's going to do this amazing thing. But the problem is that we don't believe it. We don't believe it. The good news stops becoming the good news. We boast too much, we pray too little, we act too soon. I started the sermon with this, and I'll end it, about the slow leak. I want you to look at yourself spiritually. In James, it compares the Word of God to a mirror. When we look into the Word of God, when we read God's Word, it should compel us to do something. It should compel us to change something. Just like when we look in the mirror, you notice, hey, my hair needs to... Be fixed. Or if you're a teenager, hey, I need to pop that zit. I need to do something. It doesn't compel us just to look at it and say, oh, oh well. And you walk on. It tells us to do something. It prompts us to see our sin, to make a change. 
to see our sin, to make a change. There's not one of us that cannot relate to this. There's a Christian band called Casting Crowns. And they have a song that's called, It's a Slow Fade. Let me read a little bit to you, and then I'll end with this. Listen to this. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the second glance that ties your hands. We can't control our first, what we see at first, but we can control the second look. It says, as darkness pulls the strings... Be careful, little feet, where you go, for it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. Our sins don't just affect us. It's our kids behind us. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white turn to gray. Your thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid. When you give yourself away, People never crumble in a day. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. Your sin never just affects you. It affects the people around you. And today we're ending the sermon right now. We're going to have the altars open here. Today what I'd like to encourage you is to respond. Is to respond is to make a change, to talk to God. The altars will be open. See, prayer is a recognition that my need, and we all have needs, my need is not partial. My need is total. It's what people don't see. It's below the surface. It's inside the tire. Today, I encourage you is to respond, and I'll be the first one that does that with you. So I'm going to invite the band up. And uh, if you guys could um, come. But let me pray right now. If you would bow your head. If you would stand. If you would stand and pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much just for your word. And for these wonderful failures that we could learn off of. And Lord, how our failures don't define us that you are a God of grace that picks us up and gives us a second and third chance. And Lord, I pray for our church that we will not be so full of pride that we will respond to your Holy Spirit, your prompting to change. And Lord, I pray today that as we open these altars, that your people will be honest with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to sing the song and to come as God leads you.